Anybody need a Bible? Matthew chapter 1. Today I'm going to do you the favor of not jumping around from book to book. Some of you are going to be happy with that. I have enough content in this chapter alone to, uh, this, what I'm dealing with to spend, huh? Yeah, to last for the entire biblical history up to Jesus' coming. So uh, I'll try to be careful. All right. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathon, and Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for Matthew as, as a gospel writer, the gift that your spirit gave us in him and the work that he did in recording 
and the history of the coming of the Christ and his genealogical lineage, um, the fact that he is a son of Abraham and a son of David and is the promised Davidic king and Messiah. We thank you that he also recorded the virgin birth and the conception of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And so we know that he is the great king of all things, not only Israel. Lord, we thank you that that you superintended by your spirit to write these things down for our benefit, for our instruction, uh, so that we might know that he is the Christ and we might rejoice in him. I pray this morning that you would illumine our minds so that we would understand it rightly. And Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would soften them so that we would receive your word with joy. For the praise of your son. Amen. Well, this Christmas, I want to focus on um, really the idea of Jesus as the gracious king. Now, I want to break that really into two different categories. There's a lot of things I could talk about with regard to Jesus and Christmas um, and the whole coming of Christ and the birth of Christ, and the announcement and all that's behind it. But I want to focus on really these two things. The idea that one, Jesus is the king. He is transcendent. He is holy other. He is glorious and majestic and powerful and the ruler of all things. He is just. And in that sense, he seems unapproachable and to be feared and revered in that sense. But I don't want to leave it there. I also want to talk about the fact that Jesus is a gracious king. He's a gracious. Not only is he holy and other, but he is a king who is with us, who cares for us, who is gracious to us. So he's imminent. He's transcendent, the king, holy other, to be worshiped, revered, and feared. And he is gracious, humble, eminent among us. And I want to talk about both of those things as we look at who Jesus is over the next Two weeks, in fact, and we started this morning. We're going to look at that picture of Jesus over the next two weeks. So next week, when we're all gathered over at Hodel's, uh, so you remember over at Hodel's um, with the other 200 people who are coming, um, whom you've all invited, we're going to continue this study on Jesus as our gracious king. And I want to separate these two items so that we can really draw them out and what they mean and how they affect us and what it is that God is trying to reveal to us. And so today we're going to start that by looking at the gospel of Matthew. We're going to start that study by looking at the gospel of Matthew, specifically um, chapter one, one through 23, as we focus on this as Christmas season. And on studying the gospels, there's, um, there's a Presbyterian pastor actually named uh, Legan Duncan, who's also a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, who made this statement about the gospels. He said this, You're studying Gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospels are not written simply to give us a biographical account. They are written for a redemptive purpose. A Gospel is a record of what God has done to save sinners. Through the incarnation, the earthly life, the mighty acts, and the suffering and death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what a Gospel is. And that is why John says if he were to write everything that he could write about Christ, 
that he supposed that the whole world could not contain all the books that he could write about him. He didn't do that. He gave us a gospel. He gave us a book which recorded specific things for the benefit of our salvation. Not simply to tickle our curiosity, not to reach and scratch our historical fancy, but to help us in our saving knowledge of God. This is what a gospel is. Not a biography, but a record of the saving acts of God. So as we look at Matthew's gospel over the next two weeks, these first, this first passage of Matthew's gospel over the next two weeks, I encourage you to remember that everything is written as a record of the saving acts of God. Even this genealogy. The history is important, however, to understand how God saved us. The history is important because we need to know that this isn't just a nice story that happened. In history, God truly created us. In history. In history, man truly fell into sin. In history, God truly made promises to save real people. God truly acted to bring salvation to people. In history, God truly sent his son as a man. And in history, God was conceived and born as a man. The son of God lived, died, and rose as a man in history. In history, God poured out his spirit for our salvation, sealing, empowering, filling, and comforting us. All of those things actually happened historically. They aren't just myths and fairy tales that are somehow an opiate for those who are weak-minded. They are real historical facts. This is the story that we read, the historical story of the one true God who entered our lives and saved us. Just think about that when you read this passage. I want us to remember that sovereign grace. This is a real historical story of the God of the universe sending his eternal son to be our gracious king. It's not just a cute fairy tale we tell every year in December so that we can gather around and have a feel good time together. It isn't just something we get together to somehow calm our psychosis or give us some kind of nice story that helps us weather the storms of life. It's real. It's true. The God of the universe took on flesh and lived among us and died among us and rose from the dead among us and poured out his spirit upon us. That all happened. When we know this, we can't live as those who sit in our seats and think, you know, that's an interesting story. Or that's a cool religious idea. Or, you know, that makes me feel good. Or, you know, I really like the book of Matthew. I like how it's arranged. It's a good read. Or, you know, I wonder what he'll do with the genealogy. If he can preach genealogy well, man. That's what people do. I don't know about you, but I've sat out there and done that very thing when it comes to the word of God and listening to this. 
That's not how we ought to approach it, though. Really, when we hear this announcement of the coming of this gracious king, Jesus, it ought to cause in us fear and trembling. It ought to cause in us reverence as we read the true story of our awesome king. This story ought to smash our idols. It ought to wreck our unbiblical worldview. It ought to reorient all our priorities. It ought to comfort us in our afflictions, give us confidence to proclaim the truth, motivate us to give everything to the glory of God and cause overwhelming joy to flood our hearts. It's what it ought to do. I say this is true even when we read a genealogy. Even in a genealogy. How can this be? How could a genealogy be spiritually beneficial? I mean, I don't know about you, but this is how I generally read genealogies. You ready? When you approach a book of the Bible, maybe you're like me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. Okay, where does this thing end? All right. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the port. Anybody else do that? You know, biblical genealogies are extremely important. They are. For the Jews, genealogies established what family they were descended from and thus what lands they had rights to. Various families had rights to various pieces of land. It was laid down in the Old Testament law. So they wanted to know where they were descended from. It's also true that there were two families that they wanted to know if they were a part of because one of them, the family of Levi, had the right to the priesthood. Another one, the family of Judah, had the right to the throne. And they wanted to know, you know, which rights belong to me? Am I a Levite? Do I have the right to the priesthood? Am I a part of the tribe of Judah? Do I have a right to the throne? Am I a Benjamite? Should I be in this land over here? And it was extremely important. All these rights were determined by the original promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom we read about in Genesis. We must remember that Abraham was the man to whom God promised that through his son Isaac would come a great nation and a great Messiah who would bless all the nations. God then worked miraculously to give Abraham the ability to impregnate Sarah, Abraham being 100 years old and that being difficult at 100, Sarah being 90 and that also being difficult and being barren, and yet God miraculously worked to bring about the birth of Isaac. And in God's promise to Isaac, in God's covenant, or excuse me, covenant with Abraham, in his promise to Abraham, he made him the father of all the Jews. He was the first Jew and he started his entire nation. So everything flew, flowed through his life. He told Abraham through you would come the Messiah through your seed would come the Messiah. And so everything flows through Abraham's life. Isaac then had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the chosen son to inherit the promise. Jacob then had 12 sons. He was busy. And he made, who made up the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of these tribes was given different lands and different roles to the sons of Levi was given the priesthood to the sons of Judah was given the right to rule. So it was deeply important for the Jews to know 
their lineage. That's why they don't read over those quickly. But the importance of the genealogy doesn't, genealogy doesn't stop there. For God's promise of the king, the Messiah, was also through a certain line. Do you know that? And must be confirmed through a genealogy. God did not leave the promise as broad as this. Through Abraham's seed will come the Messiah. That's where it started, but he didn't leave it there. He narrowed it. Not only will it be through Abraham's seed, Isaac, it will be through Isaac's, not Ishmael. It'll be through Jacob and not Esau. And it'll be through Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons. And not only who will be the tribe that rules, and then he'd come all the way down history and a guy named King David comes along. And what family was he a part of? The house of Judah. And God told David, David, he will come from your seed. He'll come from your house. So it must be demonstrated genealogically that Jesus was indeed from the legal lineage of King David and father Abraham. If the claim to be king is legitimate. To understand why it's important, right? Why Matthew lists this. Which leads really to my first point. His genealogy, Jesus' genealogy shows that he's king. His genealogy shows that he's king. And I'm going to break that into two parts. His human genealogy, verses 1 through 17, and his divine genealogy, verses 18 through 23, show that he is king. First, I want to look at his human genealogy. Matthew tells us that he is giving us the genealogy. If you look at verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That isn't his last name, right? He wasn't Mr. Christ. Okay. That's a title. Jesus, the Messiah is another way to say that. The son of David, the son of. Of Abraham. In other words, he's telling us, he's providing us with historical proof that Jesus is the Messiah, as is shown by his legal descendants from David and Abraham. Therefore, he's the king and he has the right to legal right to the throne. And in this whole genealogy, really Davidic kingship is the center of all of it. The Davidic kingship is, is the center of all of it. Look, the whole genealogy structured around David's house. Look at verses 1 through 6. Starts off with here, the son of David leads there. But then look at 2 through 6 here. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Interestingly, by the way, leading with a miraculous birth before you get to the divine conception of Jesus, isn't it? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. See, why do we have to go to Judah? Because Judah's the house where the rulers come from and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nishan and Nishan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. He told you all that so we could get to David, the king. So in verses 1 through 6, we really see the origin of David's line. 
And then in verses 7 through 11, we see the rise and the decline of the house of David. Look at 7 through 11 there. I'll continue to read at the second part of verse 6 there. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. An interesting note we'll get to. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. What's he laying out there? Here's David, this glorious king. After him comes Solomon, who unites the empire and makes it incredibly glorious at this point, and then it's a downhill slide from there. All the sons from there become somewhere between a decent king to a bad king. The, the, the nation splits, continues to go downhill until finally Nebuchadnezzar comes in and conquers them in the early 600 uh, B.C. time period, comes in and conquers them and takes over and now they're deported to Babylon. So it's this downfall. It's the rise of David's house and the fall of David's house is all there in 7 through 11. And then in 12 through 17, he talks about the complete descent into obscurity of David's house. David's house completely descends into obscurity. Look what he says in 12 and following. And after the deportation to Babylon, what happened? Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel. Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. You read about these guys all the time in the Bible, right? Just complete descent into obscurity. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methon, and Methon, the father of Jacob. And then we get to this seemingly obscure man, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Who are they? Some random couple and... Bethlehem or Nazareth, right? Technically, in Nazareth, a hick town, right? It's like the oil dale of Israel. <laughs> Hate to say it. <laughs> Sorry, oil dale people. Maybe Taft would be better. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Unknown couple in some unknown town in a little tiny conquered nation. That's where David's line had gotten to. And what's glorious about this is, and Matthew brings out, is that at this complete total point of obscurity of the household of David, there, the root of Jesse is born. Right? There, the Messiah, the Davidic king is born in that family. In fact, David is so central to this genealogy that some think, you know, David just goes, he's completely central to this genealogy to the extent that some think that's the reason it's organized in groups of 14. See how he says this? So all the generations from Abraham, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You, you want to know something? Do you, do you know that there were other family members or men in this line? 
This isn't a complete line Matthew gives us. Matthew gives us three groups of 14 generations organized around David. But there are other fathers in here. Is it abnormal for a Jew, however, to say of a grandson or a great-grandson, he's the son of? No. We can be called sons of Abraham in Jewish thinking, right? Spiritually, obviously, because of Gal- in Galatians, we find that we are sons of Abraham. But physically, any physical Jew would consider themselves a son of Abraham. You guys know that? That wouldn't be an abnormal kind of talk. And it's not abnormal for them to skip generations as they go down. And Matthew aligns all of this in 14 generations. The question was, why? What's the point? I think, now I'm not going to say this definitively, okay? I think that what Matthew's doing here is he's using a technique that was used by Jewish rabbis called gematria, which I'm sure is entirely helpful to you for me to tell you that. But let me explain what it is, okay? Gematria is uh, the way they would use numbers to spell out a name and point to an important theological principle. For example, in Revelation, we have a number that everybody's familiar with, which is the mark of the beast or the Antichrist, which is 666. Of course, one number short of 777, right, which would be a perfect number. So it seems to be a sign of man and maybe actually spelling a name because Hebrew letters correspond to Hebrew numbers. So I'll give you an example. The name David um, is all consonants, by the way. In Hebrew, they don't have vowels. They vowel point, but that was later. They don't have vowels in original Hebrew language. So in Hebrew, David's name is Dalit Vav Dalit. Okay, that's helpful to you. I should actually go this way, right? But (laughs) Dalit Vav Dalit, okay? D, that Dalit, we transliterate that D. That's why we end up with David, DVD, right? Okay. Dalit is the number four. Vav is the number six. And Dalit is the number four. What's four plus six plus four? Fourteen. So some people argue that what Matthew is doing is cluing us in on the fact that this is all centered around King David. That's an argument. I, like I said, it's not definitive, but, but it is an argument. And it may point again to the fact that David is, in fact, the center of this genealogy because of the Davidic promise that the Messiah would come through him. Okay. Someone may object that all this is great. Great, Chad. David's the center of it. And Joseph is David's descendant. And therefore, Joseph is legally right, the rightful King, but Jesus isn't Joseph's son. Look at verse 16 and Jacob, the father of Joseph, what the father of Jesus? No, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born of whom Jesus was born is of whom Joseph, uh, Joseph, Or Mary, Mary of Mary, right? Who is called the Christ. And it's true. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. That's true. He was not Jesus' biological father, which Matthew is careful to make clear by calling Joseph the husband of Mary. 
and not the father of Jesus. It's also true, however, that Joseph would have been seen as his legal father. He would have been seen as his legal father. He would have been such as Mary's husband. Notice Joseph is even legally married to Mary when he finds out she's pregnant. A lot of us don't think about that, but look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Because they are legally married, he has to divorce her if he wants out of the relationship. He can't just dump her and ask for the ring back. Right? Betrothal is different than engagement to the United States. There is a similarity between betrothal and engagement, but they're not exactly the same. Here's what betrothal was like in first century Jewish culture. First century Jewish culture, if you're a guy and your dad says, you know, I want to, you're now at the marrying age, which you're usually a little older because you can run the family business, family farm, etc. So you're a little older and your dad says, okay, son, I'm going to get you a wife. So he goes and finds a girl, usually 14, 15, right at that age, which is probably where Mary was when she was pregnant, okay, with Jesus. So around 14, he goes out and finds that, talks to that girl's dad. So your dad goes to that girl's dad and says, um, I want your daughter to be the wife for my son. And here's the bride price. He offers what's called a dowry or bride price. He pays for her. And, uh, you know, so many chickens, so many goats, the whole thing. It's true. I actually was in Africa and watched a betrothal happen in Africa, which was really cool. I don't know if you saw any Dean when you were there, but I saw a betrothal happen in Africa and Uganda where uh, we got to come out and, and as the betrothal was occurring, um, this is really the first time, um, the husband and wife interacted much. Their parents had done most of it and, um, so they're there and they're having this big celebration for the betrothal. Although this is not yet the wedding. We have to be clear, not yet the wedding. Um, it's just the betrothal, but they're legally married at this point. And so they're there and then they say, Hey, let's go look at the dowry. And so they actually, we all got to, and all the family and everybody got to walk. And it was like walking through a petting zoo. You got to actually walk through and, and view the dowry and see, and they're like, as you're walking around, seeing the cows and the chickens and goats, they could hear African men saying, Oh, this one really brought a good price, you know, really got it, brought a good price, you know, and, and commenting on how, uh, you know, viable this dowry was and therefore how valuable this woman was. Um, but this happened and what happened was once the betrothal occurred, you can't break it off. It's not like engagement. You're legally married, but you cannot yet consummate until the wedding. Okay. So you could wait. For up to a year, that woman doesn't come into your house. She stays in her father's house and you stay doing your thing. And sometime during the year, wedding preparations are made all, all year long. And sometime the groom shows up and he shows up for his bride. And there the wedding happens. Big party usually lasted a whole week, a whole week. Okay. That's what kind of receptions they had, right? <laughs> Whole week long, that's all everybody did. They dropped everything in the city because the groom has arrived. They partied all week long. Then the bride and groom went away for their, um, not their honeymoon, but onto their lab- laborious lives and laborious lives in the, in the farm. But anyways, not so romantic after that. That's probably why they partied a whole week up to it. 
But then the consummation happened. And that's why you had to divorce in a betrothal. So when Mary becomes pregnant, here's the story. Essentially, Mary's this 14-year-old girl. She's been betrothed to this man, Joseph. The Spirit comes to her and tells her, well, an angel actually comes to her and tells her the Holy Spirit has impregnated you. You've conceived, you're with child from the Holy Spirit. How all that works, I don't know. But you're with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, so is your cousin Elizabeth, um, pregnant by her husband, Zechariah. And that's a miraculous conception. And Mary says, I'm going to go visit her. So Mary goes and stays with Elizabeth for several months. So she leaves. Now, here's Joseph, okay? Poor Joseph. He's betrothed to this young girl. She goes off to live with her cousin Elizabeth for several months. She comes back home. Pregnant as can be. And she says, Joseph, Joseph, please believe me. I did not have sex. This is the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, I imagine Joseph at this point is thinking, sure. Yeah, this woman has completely deceived me. She has committed adultery. But there's a couple of options here. I can divorce her publicly and subject her to stoning. Okay. Or in Joseph's case, he was a righteous man. He cared about her and cared about truth. And he was gracious. And so he said, I'll divorce her quietly, which is where you just go get a couple of witnesses, get the divorce done so that she's not subject to stoning. And that's what he was going to do. But the fact is, you know, the angel comes to him and tells him, don't do it. This she is with child from the Holy Spirit. Um, as we go on in the story, we'll see that. But Joseph is the legal father of Jesus because they were married prior to her even getting pregnant. He is just not his biological father. The other clue that we get that he is actually the father is not only that, but um, Joseph was given the role. Look, look down here as we find out what happened. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Saying, Joseph, son of David, notice that emphasis again on David. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in, in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Interestingly, Joseph is given the job of naming Jesus. In Jewish culture, the father had the job, the legal father had the job of naming the son. And Joseph's given that role. In other words, in Joseph naming the son, in Joseph being the legal husband of Mary, Joseph is the legal father of Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is legally descended from the line of David. You guys follow that? So Jesus is his legal son and therefore entitled to be the king of Israel. But Matthew goes even further and tells us that he's the messianic king, that he has the title to everything. He shows us this through his divine genealogy. Look at verse 18. 
Not only does his human genealogy show he's king, but his divine genealogy does. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Now you're not going to notice this in English so much. But look up at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now if you're reading this in Greek, you're going to notice that the word genealogy is, it comes from the root of the word, or the root of that word is genea. If you look at it here, the birth, that same root word, genea. In other words, first we're given the genealogy from his human side, and next we're given his divine genealogy. Is the way the play on words works there. So Matthew's giving us Jesus' divine lineage. There are four evidences actually that Jesus gives, or that Matthew gives, sorry, for Jesus' divine lineage. Here they are. You want to see his divine genealogy, the four, re- four evidences. First, he tells us that Joseph, in verse 16, is the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus. Why is that important? Because if Joseph, Joseph is the father of Jesus, then who is not? God, right? Second, he tells us that um, Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So not only is Joseph only his legal father and not biological, thus an evidence that she had this baby some other way, but she was a virgin who conceived from the Holy Spirit. Third divine lineage clue is that they have an angelic visitation. Angelic visitation, look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he has no biological father. She's a, his, he, you know, his mother is a virgin who is told by an angel that she is conceived from the Holy Spirit. It's announced in Scripture more than once. Third, an angel visits not only her, but also visits Joseph and tells him that she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, You have prophetic fulfillment. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That is a prophecy from Isaiah, from Isaiah, where he prophesies that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so you have a fulfillment of a prophecy and that he will be God with us. That's what the name Emmanuel means. So Jesus is shown just by the lineages listed here to be fully man and to be fully God. So he's not only king of this earth as the messianic king and of Israel, but he's the king of the heavens also. That's why Jesus can say all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. These facts are the basis for Jesus' right to rule over all things and to command his people. Yet I think we think of Jesus' commands oftentimes as optional, don't we? 
We so often respond as those who are, uh, as the Campus Crusade for Christ tracks used to say, sitting on the thrones of our own lives, right? I mean, honestly, how many of us really consider, do I do what Jesus would command me to do or have me do in all circumstances? Really ask that question? I think of things that Jesus commands, and I could list a whole lot of commands from Jesus, but just some of them. How many of us really fulfill Jesus' command to care for the orphans and widows? Or Jesus' command to care for the poor and seek justice for the oppressed? Or his command to give generously, even sacrificially, i.e. to the point where we're giving up other things to see the gospel go forth and doing that joyfully. How many of us really follow Jesus' command to preach the gospel to all the nations, to make disciples in all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey? How many of us follow the command to pray without ceasing? Or the command to rejoice always. See, we hate it when Jesus commands our emotions, don't we? God has the right in our minds to command our actions, but certainly never our emotions. Because we think we can't control those. And to some extent, because we're fallen, we don't control them all the time. That's why we're thankful Jesus did control his. And he does command them. Rejoice always, it's command. Jesus commands us to forgive others even as God has forgiven us. We've never even come close to having someone sin against us in the way that we've sinned against God. And we're supposed to forgive in the same way he does. Jesus commands us to be sexually pure. He commands us not to divorce. He commands us to be humble. He commands us not to be anxious, but to seek first the kingdom of God and, all, and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to us. And therefore, we ought to trust him. You know, I could go on, right? On and on. With what Jesus commands of us. But my point is that we're so often treating our king. As if his wishes and desires are secondary to ours. As if his commands are secondary to what we would have for us. Matthew tells us that Jesus is the rightful king of heaven and earth. And thus our idolatry ought to be smashed to its core. If Jesus is really the king of all things. Then the idols that we erect and worship and obey. Which generally are the idols. That we see every morning when we look in the mirror. Those idols ought to be smashed down by an understanding of who Jesus is. But Matthew doesn't stop there, does he? Because if we stopped with the recognition that Jesus is the almighty king of heaven and earth. And went no further. Then you know what we'd experience? Guilt and despair. It would only elicit in us a right sense, and this is a right sense, of unworthiness 
right? That's all it would elicit in us. A right sense of unworthiness. But it would stop there. It would go no further. And as a result, when we see our king presented to us, we would flee from him rather than run to him. Or we would try in some way to earn his favor back. But what we would not do is run to our great king and jump into his arms. Instead, we would see ourselves under his rule and we would see ourselves as crushed and afraid. Which we rightfully should be. We've sinned against a great and majestic king. His holiness holiness prohibits him from looking on our sin. We deserve his holy justice and he is a good, just king if he administers it. But the story has so much more to it. For Jesus tells us that he did not come as our king to condemn us. For the world was what? Condemned already. Jesus came as our king to seek and save those who were lost. He came as our king to rescue us. He came because of his great love for us so that he might be gracious to us. He came to be with us and to save us. In fact, his genealogy even reveals this. This is the second point. He's not only king, not only does his genealogy show both through the human side and divine side that he's king, but his genealogy shows through both the human and divine side that he is a gracious king. He is a gracious king. So how does it reveal he's a gracious king? First, let's look at his human genealogy and how it shows he's a gracious king. And I need to move quickly. First, he came from ancestors who were sinful. Point to a person in that list of ancestors who, weren't, who wasn't a sinner. Can't do it, can you? Even Abraham, probably the most faithful man we can find on the list. Sinner. Isaac's pretty faithful, also a sinner. Jacob, complete jerk. I mean, compl- I can't find a good thing Jacob did. Yet in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. You go down and it makes interesting comments. For example, especially focusing on the sin of David. In the genealogy, David is the center of the genealogy. And yet it focuses in on him as a sinner. Look what it says in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, which is a great thing because Solomon's a great king. But how was he the father of Solomon? By the wife of Uriah. You hear what Matthew's pointing out here? He's not the father of Solomon by his own wife. He's the father of Solomon by his adultery. By the wife of another man. Whom he stole, slept with, and then had killed so he could have her. That is the man through whom the Messiah comes. A sinner. A wretched one. And yet the whole genealogy through whom Jesus comes is arranged around him. There were other sinful kings who followed David. 
including Solomon, who had a thousand wives and all sorts of problems. You want to read the summary of Solomon's life? Go read Ecclesiastes. Here's a man who's given all wisdom and then at the end of his life writes a book like Ecclesiastes where he basically lays out how he ignored all of it. He wanted more. It wasn't enough. He was the richest, most powerful king in the world, arguably, at the time. And it wasn't sufficient for him. And on and on this list goes with bad kings. There's a few good ones in there, but they're all sinners. Interestingly, Matthew does another thing that I I find striking. He points out four women in this genealogy. Now, women are not people that you would normally list in a genealogy in Jewish culture. Wouldn't happen. Uh, Actually, you know, Jewish rabbis actually had prayers. You know what one of them was? Lord, I thank thee that I am not a woman or a dog. Honestly, so to put a woman in a genealogy was already surprising. But not only does he put four women in the genealogy, he puts four women who are primarily all Gentiles. Even worse, Gentiles were considered dirty, disgusting. And not only that, he puts four women, all of whom in some way are sexually suspect. Look, look who he lists first. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, verse 3, Tamar being a Gentile woman who is sexually suspect. Go down, he continues on, uh, verse 5, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, a prostitute, a known prostitute and a Gentile, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth was a decent lady, but was a Gentile and had her own problem there that could have caused people to think she was sexually suspect. And then you go down and you've got and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, Bathsheba being a Gentile and somewhat sexually suspect historically. And then you go down um, even further and you get to his mother, Mary. Who is a Jewish woman, but who's 14 years old, claiming she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You think that's something you want to put in a genealogy? Sounds pretty credible, doesn't it? Right. But he includes her. Includes all these women. Because God doesn't reject his sinful creation as he could have justly done. Instead, he sent his son who humbled himself and became a man as we are. He walked among us and lived the life that all these people failed to and the life that we failed to. Think of the graciousness of God in allowing his son to be born from a line of sinful people. Is that not gracious? But his divine genealogy shows he's a gracious king also. Not only is human one, his divine one does also. Look at verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Mary, this obscure woman in Nazareth, an obscure poor woman in an obscure poor town, in an obscure poor country. You think there's anything more humble than Jesus coming from this circumstance? The God of the universe being conceived in these circumstances? He wasn't conceived as the son of an emperor. He was conceived as the son of some poor farm girl who would be culturally considered sexually suspect and shameful. That's who God chose to send his son through. Showing his graciousness. Not only that, but look at his human name that's even given him. Verse 20, but as he considered being Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save them or his people from their sins. You know what the word Jesus means, the name Jesus? We translate it Jesus Technically, we could translate it Joshua because it's the same word in Greek. It's Jesus. Okay. If you go back to Hebrew, it's the same exact word, Joshua. We translate it Jesus so we don't get confused with other Joshuas. That's why we do that. But the word Joshua means one thing. It's a compound word that means Yahweh. Yahweh being the name of God in the Old Testament, the great exalted name of God that the Jews were not allowed to pronounce. Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. That's what the name means. That's what the name Joshua means. Yahweh saves. I've got a little charismatic in the back. Right? But Yahweh saves. That's what it means. Even in the naming that he's given from the angel, he's given this name that's gracious, isn't he? He's given a name that not as he's a great king that's going to come and judge you and condemn you, but he's this great and marvelous and glorious king who's going to come and save you. He's going to demonstrate to you that God is a saving God. Even further, though, even in the divine name he's given, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even his divine name shows us graciousness. Because for our transcendent king to be a king who desires to be with us and among us is grace. God does not remain a distant and angry king who justly commands and justly punishes us for violating his commandments. Jesus is certainly a great king who's utterly transcendent. But he is also a great king who is utterly imminent, who is among us. He is certainly the great king who requires and deserves all praise, honor, allegiance and obedience but he is also the great king who graciously saves us he is the great king who was incredibly 
promiscuously gracious to us. He's the great king who was with us, who humbled himself among us to save us. He is the gracious king. He's the king who came to live in the flesh, the perfect life that we failed to, to pay the penalty due to us on the cross and to conquer the grave for us. He is the gracious king who created us, who sustains us, who commands us, who elects us, who calls us, who regenerates us, who justifies us, who sanctifies us, who pours out his spirit upon us, and who will resurrect and glorify us. He is the gracious king who ascended to the right hand of the Father and is continuously making intercession, praying for us. He is the gracious king who sent his spirit to regenerate us, to seal us, to indwell us, to fill us, to empower us, to guide us, and to comfort us. He is the gracious king who promises that one day he will return. And you know what he'll do? He will share his inheritance with us. Everything that is rightfully his will be shared with us. We should fear him because he's holy. We should. But we should also rejoice and running to him, for he is gracious. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and all that he is revealed to be in Scripture, that you sent your son. You didn't have to do it, Lord. You didn't even have to create us. You didn't have to tolerate us after we fell. And yet you were patient. And you promised to send us a Savior. And you did. Lord, and we're thankful for him. We're thankful that he is a great and gracious king. That he is transcendent and holy and glorious and majestic. And that he is imminent among us, gracious and loving and kind and merciful. We're thankful that you reveal both of those in just his genealogy. Lord, we pray that as this Christmas season comes on, that we would be continuously reflecting on who our great king is. And Lord, that we would be pointing other people to him. I pray especially, Lord, for your spirit to be poured out next Sunday on all these unbelievers who have been invited. And Lord, that they would see your son in his gloriousness and in his grace and that they would turn to him in faith and repent. That you would save them as you are faithful and just to do. In Jesus' name, amen.